Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey everybody, Pascal here. We are back with another episode of Disrupt Disruption and today we have Barack Berkowitz with us. There's a long story how we met and as every good long story starts, it is on a plane sitting next to each other as strangers and becoming fast friends by the end of a flight from Boston, Massachusetts to Silicon Valley. And that also tells us a little bit about where Barack is from in terms of his career. At the time, he was the Director of Operations and Strategy at the MIT Media Lab. But that's not all. He has got a long, illustrious career in technology, has done really cool stuff, including, for example, being part of the team and being the CEO of the company EV, which was turned later into Amazon Alexa. And there's a funny story where we were recently at a conference and someone claimed he invented Alexa. So far, so good. But he's also worked at companies like Wolfram Alpha, Six Apart, the first social network way before we had good old friends from Facebook doing these things, Logitech, as well as Apple USA and Apple Japan. And uh, he's been in this business in this world for quite a while. So I'm really excited to dig into innovation, disruption, transformation with Barack, a very deep thinker and a very funny guy. So uh, Barack, super excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I, I was excited till you set me up with that in introduction that I will not live up to. You will for sure live up to it. I love to start our conversation with a little bit of a level set, if you want to say so, because innovation, disruption, transformation, these terms are used often interchangeably. People have varying definitions for them or even mental models. And I'm curious, how do you think about this? So it is a hard question to answer. And if somebody says it's easy, I think they're lying or they're not thinking about it. Sometimes I just think about it in terms of trajectories and the ability to change a trajectory. And what's generally true in most things in life is that, you know, mass has inertia, acceleration, and a tendency to keep going in the direction it is going. And industries build themselves the same way and innovations build themselves the same way. And there are lots of reasons for it. It's how people think. It's the fact that we define things by words that define how we think about them, that define what we do with them. And there are moments in time, sometimes caused by history, sometimes caused by world events, sometimes caused by other physical disruption, where these trajectories change, where forces are applied to them. And when I think about innovation, I think about innovation as the way the human mind is able to change those trajectories. Hmm. So it's the unique thing about innovation versus all the other forces that can change the trajectory, a famine or a plague or whatever else. The, the humans have this unique capability to reconcept 
a situation and to do that inside their mind and then to bring it to reality. And so that's in a somewhat philosophical way how I would think about it. I love that point about trajectory. And there's an interesting part in there that the humans injection themselves into this trajectory and shaping it, shifting it, mm -hmm. like getting it off track, moving it somewhere else. What do you find is necessary on the side of the leader, the human doing that to be actually even to do this? First, the leader requires a certain amount of arrogance and lack of social conformity to be able to do this period. Almost by definition, if you are aiming to be an innovator, people will tell you you're wrong. What you're doing has been tried before or is impossible or will never work or all of the above. In fact, usually all of the above. Mm -hmm. And you need to be a, at least weird enough to be willing to look at sometimes tens of and sometimes thousands of people and still believe that you can shape that trajectory, hmm. right? I mean, look at this, this experiment that NASA just carried out in changing the trajectory of this asteroid. Mm -hmm. I think how crazy it is. Now, this is just physics, right? We're gonna send this really small spaceship up at a really high speed hit this moving rock in the middle of nowhere and knock it off course. No explosives, no nuclear weapons, nothing like out of some sci-fi movie, except for the hitting the rock in the middle of nowhere that's moving thousands of miles an hour. And it worked. Now, that's calculatable because it is in the end physics and we do understand a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. But the innovator doesn't have that advantage of math. They only have the advantages of intuition and sometimes a deep understanding of their market or what they're aiming at. Often a deep understanding for an innovator is a negative, which is something else we can talk about. Sometimes it is just an intuitive, deep understanding about what's this market is what I'm trying to do and how I how it needs to change. Maybe not knowing how it can be changed, but knowing that it does need to change. So thinking about this as a startup founder, I think it's hard enough, right? As you mentioned, there might be a thousand people and more who say, you're crazy, this doesn't work. Venture capital might not be available to you because they don't believe in you until you find the one person who's basically backing you or takes that right. risk. I know you've worked inside of big corporations at MIT. We talked actually on our flight back on this very specific day, we talked about how Media Lab is and was working with large corporations together. How do you find this working inside of organizations? What are the conditions we need to create? Clearly, the first thing is a tolerance of nonconformity. Hmm. There is no choice but that. The, the nature of disruption, innovation, disruptive innovation, let's just use the combined term. The nature of disruptive innovation is if you imagine you have somebody inside of your organization who has decided they want to kill your current business. 
the natural instinct of any group, any organization, is if inside their own ranks, there is a person who wants to kill the current structure. They are not an ally, they are a traitor. And the antibodies in most organizations will attack that individual and go after them and not allow them to function. This then leads to the highest levels of the organization, which needs to reach down. You can't really change the fact that these antibodies are going to exist in any organization. Every community tries to protect its standards and mores and ways of communicating and things like that. There needs to be leadership that reaches down and gives these people permission and even encouragement to keep going despite everybody going after them. It's funny, last night, and I'm not going to use any names, well, I'll use some names, but I'm not going to use specific names. I had dinner with this woman who works at Microsoft. And she has a role where often either Bill Gates himself or somebody else high up in the organization will use her to cause disruption in an organization and stir things up. She's been there for a long time, and I understand that almost every job she has had, despite what the title says, despite what she's paid, despite what her situation is, her job has actually been go in there and break the rules. And that comes from the very top of the organization. And it can't come from anywhere else. Talking about which, I'm curious, for that individual... Um, what do you think are the characteristics of people like that? So if we are with the CEO of a company, yeah. we want to find these people, we want to yeah. bring those people on. In the book on disruption, we talk about hunters. We like to call yes. them hunters, gatherers, like farmers, gatherers, and hunters. In your experience, what do they look like? What do I need to look for if I want to hire a person like that? So it's interesting. I don't know that thinking about her is a great model because I would not when I met her or today, think of her as the classic shaker-upper problem-causer. She's deep down inside that, and she's been identified in this big organization because she's both that but doesn't look it. So she's basically the wolf in sheep's clothing mm-hmm. and does that incredibly well and does it in such a way that she actually is almost never uncloaked as a wolf, which is effective in a very big place. Yeah. But what I would say is usually you look for the person who you keep hearing everybody hates. Hmm. Or even better, and I had this reputation at Apple. In fact, I had a boss who called me <laughs> into his office one day and he said something like, Barack, I don't know. I just don't understand it. You know, we do these 360 reviews and usually like we get a lot of variation of similar Mm -hmm. themes and variation of similar stuff and with you i only get people who love you incredibly or hate you and there's nothing in between Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't call myself the absolute prototype of this 
But I would say it is a fairly good symptom is if you get a lot of people who somebody is driving, lots of people are being driven insane by this person. And yet, occasionally you hear somebody say, that person is brilliant, what the contributions they're making are great, etc. Something's going on there. And those two things that are happening are probably not disconnected. They're probably cause and effect. Mm -hmm. They're doing great work and it's pissing people off. And that's going to be a symptom of a disruptor by definition. Because what you're seeing, you know this, when, when you get a vaccine, you get a fever. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's not a sign that the vaccine is making you sick. It's right. a sign that the vaccine's working. And the reason it's showing symptoms is your antibodies are reacting to it. In an organization where you're vaccinating it so it does not get stuck into um, lack of innovation and a rut that will lead to its extinction, you should expect anything that you inject in that organization to cause disruption will cause pain. In this context, what do you find, in addition to the immune system response you already mentioned, what are the common problems you find inside of big organizations, bigger organizations, I guess, when they are embarking on these innovation journeys? Well, I think the first one, the biggest one is middle managers. Hmm. And I would even be even more specific, middle managers with owned P&Ls. Which is why actually senior executives have to be involved in the process. Because the middle manager with an own PL is taught they have one goal hit these numbers. And the person causing disruption, particularly innovative disruption, is likely to be trying to do something that you know, at least in the short term, is going to make it impossible for you to meet your goal. They will often have lots of allies in the ranks because the reality is these people are usually saying very sensible things that everybody knows is about to happen. If you're in a business, the vast majority of the people know where the disease really is Mm -hmm. and often what the cure is. But it's the middle managers who don't want to hear it because the cure is going to give you a fever or put you in bed for a week or (laughs) cause you to get really sick. And they have a bonus that's based on getting somewhere else. When I was at Apple in Apple Japan, there was a point where we were, I mean, hitting on all cylinders. We were the largest foreign market for Apple. We were growing at the highest rate of any group in Apple, including the United States. We had the highest market share among PCs of any place in the world, including the United States. And at the end of this quarter, we missed our revenue number by, I don't know, a few million dollars. I forgot what the number was. And the VP who was in charge of us came to us and screamed at us. And 
I won't mention his name. <laughs> I mention his name, but I won't mention who he is. I, I'm like David. What the fuck? Are you? you know, you, we've got this, you know, amazing achievement. We've got an market share like no place else. What is more important than market share for us? And we've missed by a incredibly small number, and we're making a profit. And he said, "I don't care." He did have quite a potty mouth, and. I, I don't care about any of that stuff. I did not get my bonus hmm. this year, which was $3 million Ouch. because of you. Man, talk about alignment of incentives and outcomes. Mm -hmm. That is terrifying. I have a question for you. You mentioned something earlier, which made my ears prick up a little bit. So you said that Often knowing too much about a particular market is actually detrimental to innovation and disruption. Yes. And I believe I fundamentally agree with the premise as it, I, I guess the, the main reason is that you're so stuck in like thinking about the existing solutions, right? Or the mm -hmm. existing ways to solve the customer's problems that you're just like, you, get, can't, you can't see anything else. But how do you think about this in in increasingly complex markets, because I find Silicon Valley seems to be full of, you know, some college grads or people who didn't ever attended college, by all right. means, totally fine, who think they can actually unravel a highly complex industry yep. with, quite frankly, relatively primitive thinking and kind of like it backfires. Right. A good example for me is Theranos, of course, right? Yeah, uh, so you've got yeah. someone who's got like one semester of <laughs> physics and fluidity thinking that they can do a thing which is physically actually impossible. So I'm curious, how do you balance those two? There's one issue, which is if what you need to know if you are experienced. Mm -hmm. And what you need to know if you are experienced is it is not, it is normal that in many conversations, you are going to say something really stupid like, we tried that five years ago and mm -hmm. it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Or I had that idea before, mm -hmm. uh, you know, every time you hear those words coming out of your mouth, slap yourself. <laughs> Stop it. Today is not yesterday. Mm -hmm. You have no knowledge. The reason that experience is a problem is experience makes you start to believe you have knowledge. And the reality is you have knowledge about the past. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge about the past is both useful and dangerous because particularly in a world of, of technological change and innovation, the past may be completely irrelevant. I founded with four friends a wireless internet company called OmniSky that went public in 2000 and asset sale in 2001. And this company was basically an iPhone. It was a Palm Pilot with little downloadable apps on it that gave you what we called the moral equivalent of the internet in your hand. You had email and Google and, you know, everything. 2000, I mean, we had Google on a handheld computer wirelessly connected for $59.95 a month for unlimited data. Well, except the networks were horrible. There were no networks that were, there was one data network that we used called CPDP, 
that had incredibly bad throughput and burnt batteries like mad. And so we did everything, but we failed. Mm -hmm. And we failed because we were not wrong. We were completely right. We failed because we were early. Now, just coincidentally, I was also involved in founding General Magic, which is even before of this guy. Right. And had pretty much the same idea and failed for similar but different reasons. But I mean, then the networks didn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. The standards didn't exist at all. And there, the hardware didn't exist. So great idea. Wrong. Now, if I walked out of either of those and thought, since it didn't work, it will never work, I'm going to stifle innovation. Right. Then if you're a young person, the challenge that you have is, one, you don't want to kill the belief that I know everything. There's something good about experimenting the world with the world and seeing if you get burnt. Mm-hmm. You just want a safe playpen for that to take place. You know, depends what your job is, but you surely will sometimes hire very smart people with no experience. And it is not a bad idea to let them break things. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the whole company should be busy breaking things, but it's pretty important to have some people around who are willing to believe they know what they're doing when they don't and not to tell them they don't. Let me ask you a question. I love the General Magic story. For anyone who's listening, there's an absolutely amazing documentary out there, which I highly recommend. I believe it's now on Netflix. I actually saw it being screened. It was incredible. How do you get timing right? So this is a constant problem because if you're late, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And if you're early, you're in trouble. And I think you talked about this when I saw you last, but I do totally believe this. One, one way to do this is to always be experimenting. Hmm. And so basically to always be early, right. but then always be asking the question, is there something missing that would be essential for success? So for hmm. instance, I think OmniSky would have been more successful running at a low cash burn at a straightforward approach to innovation and focused on a very vertical market for a while Mm -hmm. where we could provide value, let's call it construction, Mm -hmm. that desperately needed mobile communications in text and couldn't get it. And, And then over time, when you see the signals move, Now, that is very hard to do for the same reason, because you're almost creating your own innovator's dilemma. Right. And that's why some big companies are much better positioned to do this than small companies. Apple is incredibly good at doing this. If I were to talk about like, yeah, I mean, the new Apple, not the Apple I worked at, but if I were to talk about Apple's core skill today, it is to be willing to have a vision that they know is right Mm -hmm. and spend a great deal of money on it for a very long time Mm -hmm. without setting a deadline for when they have to monetize it. Right. 
And you can see this in, in autonomous driving. I see it's not right now. It used to be like if I was looking out my window, I would see one of these Apple cars mm -hmm. training itself out, out my window. You clearly saw it on phones, on the iPhone, and the amount of time that was spent on that. You, you see it all the time on display technologies. And so a company like that that has been incredibly good at being huge and maintaining innovation is willing to lose a lot of money playing around with things they believe are definitely going to work someday but they don't know when. Could I ask you, so I was at Google for a little while, yes, and in, in some ways you can make the same argument at least conceptually, that's what Google is trying to do with X, for example, right? And yeah. many other like initiatives inside of the organization, but they don't seem to get it kind of pulled together quite right. right. And I'm curious, why is that? Where's the difference between a Google and an Apple? My gut is that X is a mistake. This needs to be a responsibility of the business units. Hmm. They need to be constantly trying to break their unit. And Apple does and did have something called the Advanced Technology Group. Mm -hmm. And the Advanced Technology Group, and General Magic actually grew out of the Advanced Technology Group. That's where I was involved in General Magic in a project called Paradigm. But as a rule, The Advanced Technology Group and X do not end up creating mainstream products. Mm -hmm. The mainstream products, and, and it's one of the reasons I believe that General Magic failed, the mainstream products come out from a business group that understands the market well enough that they know that they can play around with it for a long, long time and know the moment that they can insert it in their distribution channels and their sales channel and their marketing messages and all that other stuff. And, you know, they should get inspired by Apple Advanced Technology Group or uh, Google X, but not be separated from. And that stuff needs to go under that group pretty fast once you know it really is going to become real at some point. I think Apple's become much better at doing that. Advanced technology does literally that. And I think Google actually moved the opposite direction. It's separated X even more. And I don't even know how X gets back into a division. Right. Kind of zooming out from here, you already mentioned a whole bunch of factors you find and found relevant and important as one thinks about innovation and disruption inside of a corporate entity. Like the, the people, we talked a bit about the integration and disintegration of, of these systems. If you were, and I know that you do advise both mm -hmm. startups as well as large corporations and investors, so you've got your fingers in many, many pies, which is awesome. A bigger corporation would come to you today and say, listen, we tried this, we don't know what to do. How do we start? We want to become more innovative, more disruptive. Mm -hmm. And you and I, we get this question quite a bit. What are the things you tell them to get started with and how do they conceptually th should think about this? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'd probably send them to you since this is not <laughs> my exactly the stuff. I sometimes advise on this, but not mm -hmm. often. I often advise on fixing something that got mm -hmm. broken in the process. Now that I've done this a lot, I would now first look at who's in front of me. 
And if the person in front of me is not the CEO, I would say, well, if you can bring the CEO here to talk, I can give you an answer mm-hmm. about that. Without the CEO, there's really no answer. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you want to talk to me about how we have a talk with the CEO about how he starts or he or she starts sponsoring mm-hmm. this type of behavior, I can talk to you about strategy. But I can tell you that if this is not desired by the highest levels of the organization and even initiated from the highest levels of the organization, it will not work. Hmm. In contradiction to this, at Apple, when I moved from working on Apple to Macintosh, which was very early, um, we decided that there was no way that the IT professionals in the organization would allow our machines to get into organizations. Hmm. And so we focused on two groups of people. One group of people were creative professionals inside the organization, the marketing department, the graphics department, the brand, whatever. And the other group were the senior executives. And to the senior executives, we basically said, you know, you're too important to be hassled with key commands and (laughs) formatting (laughs) stuff. And you can just go tell your IT people to screw themselves. You're buying this Macintosh. And Apple's success in corporations, which is obviously not complete, what success there is, is almost 100% driven from those two directions. Hmm. People who had enough authority to just say, screw it to everybody else. Mm -hmm or people who had such a specialized task that they had an excuse and a huge drive to use the better tool. And so this pincer movement, that in a really good organizational innovation change movement, that's how it works. Young people at the bottom of the organization who are saying we desperately need to change, Mm and senior people who are willing to sponsor that at the very top. And forget everybody in the middle. They'll, they're going to have to come along. Or not. <laughs> One of the two. Or not. But the CEO has to be willing to say our future is more important than our past. Right. And so we are willing to, to tell you you're going to come along or not. That is the last question or last point of okay. conversation for us. I'm curious, when you look at the space of, call it innovation management, I still find that most of us, we revert back to Clayton Christensen, Innovator's Dilemma, which is by now more than 20 years old. And by all means, a seminal text. Absolutely. I mean, I've read that book so many times. What do you get excited about when you think about how we approach innovation and disruption. And I I don't care if this comes from a startup perspective, from an investor perspective, from a company perspective, but what do you get excited about for the future? Where do you see there is something happening which might look different than what Clayton taught the world? I'm not academically or at this exact moment that intellectually involved in the innovation space. So I would say 
I'll turn it a little bit on its head. Mm-hmm. I believe that we are at a global moment of unprecedented crisis and unrecognized unprecedented crisis. Mm-hmm. And that this relates to the trajectory that we are on both as societies across the world mm-hmm. and as technologies across the world. And therefore, I think we're at a moment that is going to force massive innovation, like it or not, which is usually what happens, the biggest innovations, the biggest disruptions. And some of these disruptions either will be or will feel like they are not innovations because they are not human driven. Hmm. They might have been driven by human inputs Mm-hmm. but they're not being driven by human thought, by human direction and interpretation. But their solutions will require massive trajectory changes. Hmm. The negative part of it is I'm not quite positive a lot of us are going to survive this crisis. And the positive thing is I believe humans are unbelievably good at solving problems when they have to. And that incredible innovation, change, revolution will take place. And some of that will be just mind-bogglingly productive and beneficial to everybody on the planet. And I'm just praying and actually working a bit to minimize the pain and suffering that sometimes goes on with these massive changes. Let me leave this standing on its own, because I think these are very, very wise words. Barack, thank you so much for this conversation. As always, my mind is expanded and about to explode. And in in pieces, it already has exploded. Adored our conversation, truly. I love the the breadth and going into the details of you know what is the, what are the te- the types of people we have like what are the problems we face inside of organizations and how do we overcome them but then also just really taking the big picture perspective and acknowledging the fact that these are unprecedented times and i i absolutely agree with you and i do think more people re- realize this faster the better it can only be for us so thank you so much for the conversation thank you also so much for what you do in the world, because of course our paths have crossed multiple times, being in interesting places, doing interesting work. So thank you so much for everything you do. And um, I am sure the world will hear much more from you as I know that you are gearing up towards many, putting your fingers into even more things. So I yeah. just can't wait what's next for you. Well, thanks, Pascal. This, this was a great talk. I really appreciate it and hope I contributed something to it. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and leave a quick review. It helps tremendously with getting the insights from our guests out into the world. If you have any questions, send me an email. You can reach me at pascal at finet.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will hear you here soon.